to City Break Ideas, episode 15. A warm welcome if you're a regular listener, and an especially warm welcome if you're a new listener. I know we do often have some of those when we are doing a City Break Ideas episode. If you are new to City Breaks, then perhaps I'll just start by explaining what it is. I'm Marion Jones. I've got a background in teaching, in languages, in reading up on history and culture, especially if I'm going on the City Break. And the podcast series is a reflection of all of that, really. All the research that you might do yourself, if you had the time, when you're planning a city break, and from which you could benefit and get so much more out of your visit. We're currently on our eighth city, London, averaging, actually I haven't worked it out, but averaging perhaps 18, to pluck a number at random, episodes per series. So a long, slow look at the city, a visit to all the major sites, and a retelling of the stories behind them. We've covered Toulouse, we've covered Seville, we've covered St Petersburg. If you are interested and it's new to you, I hope you'll pop over to the website www.citybreaks.co.uk and have a look. Anyway, on with today's episode. During the first week of each month, I like to widen my horizons a little bit, involve some other travel writers, bloggers, people who run websites, and pick their brains for ideas for interesting cities that City Breaks itself hasn't been to yet. Generally, I find that three guests per episode gives you plenty to think about, while hopefully giving each of them a little bit of time to, as it were, show their wares. I only choose websites that I really like, and I try and give you a flavour of what it was I liked about them, and an idea of what's on them, and then I pinch from each of them a couple of city ideas and tell you a little bit about those. Hopefully then, everyone wins. I get lots of new ideas, they get a little bit of publicity, you get lots of things to think about. Certainly last month's three guests, that's Rene from Dream Plan Experience, and Becca from Travelling the World in 360, and Ross from How We Travel, all got in touch after the episode had gone live and seemed pretty happy. Actually, they were quite complimentary, which is even nicer. You're a natural, said Renee, who enjoyed, apparently, me bringing her past travel adventures back to life. Beck said what a pleasure it had been to be featured. And Ross's comment was, we did really genuinely enjoy listening to you talking about our baby. Yes, I'm always aware that someone else has put all that time and effort into their website, and I should be respectful about it. So, if you run a travel website yourself, or you know anyone who does, please get in touch because I'm always looking for new people to feature. Okay, so this month we're going to kick off with an interestingly named website called Caffeinated Excursions. And Kevin, who runs it, introduces himself as follows. I'm a traveller and a language enthusiast, already a good start and match with me, I feel. And then he goes on, and a coffee addict. I'm originally from Seattle. And Caffeinated Excursions is named, at least in part, to pay homage to my home city. Ah, I was wondering. Now, Kevin, it turns out, is quite the traveller. He's one of those people who actually bases himself in a different country for work or for study or whatever. And so far, I believe he's only 27 or 28, he has worked for eight months in Mexico City. He lived in Columbia, South Carolina for a year. He went to university in Washington, and that included a study year in Shanghai, about which he comments, it's a truly incredible city that you really have to see to believe. And I particularly liked his reasoning for starting the travel blog. 
When he first went on solo trips abroad, he says, other people's travel blogs were an invaluable resource. And, as he continues, still are to this day. So he gave an example. In 2017, he went to Aruba, and he says he based the entire trip around a 48-hour guide he found online. Just to name-check the website, it was called Weekend Jet Setter, and he found it so helpful and useful that he felt he would start his own travel blog and try and do the same for other people. Going pretty well so far, he's been to 34 different countries, there are 100-plus posts on the website, and so, of course, my problem was which to pick for the podcast. Okay, so I decided to go for one in America, but one far away from his home city of Seattle, namely Fort Lauderdale. You may well be considering a South Florida getaway, he says. Everyone's heard of Miami, the most famous destination, but don't forget, Fort Lauderdale has a lot to offer too. It is, he says, the Venice of America, because there's an extensive network of rivers and waterways. It's got a laid-back, relaxed atmosphere, it's more affordable than Miami, and it's quite a family-friendly destination. If partying's your thing, he says, yep, you may be better off in Miami. And also that's a better starting point if what you're planning to do is drive down to the Florida Keys. There are posts on both those topics on his blog, but I decided to stick with Fort Lauderdale, because I was intrigued. If you go there, he says, you need to spend at least one day on the beach, where you can enjoy the boardwalk and the palms and the sea. City Breaks always likes to focus on historical attractions, and he explains that there are plenty of those too, in a very useful blog post which gives you the address of each place, the website, an idea of prices and so on. And his top three I've picked out to tell you a little bit about. So one called Bonnet House, originally an estate which belonged to a married couple. They were artists, they were art collectors, Frederick and Evelyn Bartlett, and you can go to their house, enjoy their impressive art collection, truly spectacular architecture, and glorious grounds full of reflecting ponds and local foliage and an orchid greenhouse. Another thing you really must do is take a water taxi, a boat trip which will give you a good sense of the whole of the city, allow you to see the most extravagant homes and the massive yachts. There's a tour guide on board who will explain to you all about what you can see at each stop, and Kevin's idea is why not do the whole trip without getting off in one direction, get a sense of the place, and then return getting off wherever takes your fancy and having a good look round. And you can do that because the ticket that you buy is valid all day. A second museum he would recommend that you visit is Stranahan House Museum, all about the early settlers from the 1900s who made Fort Lauderdale what it is today and where you can go round a period house and learn all about the businesses they started and the way of life that they led. There's a section on the blog too which talks about the various neighbourhoods in Fort Lauderdale so you can decide which ones you want to see, discover where the areas with lots of seafood restaurants are, for example, and coming to food, I think that's a particular interest of Kevin's. If you're a foodie and South Florida isn't on your radar, he writes, then it needs to be. And that because it's an area where international cuisine can be found in abundance. Lots of authentic specialities from Latin America and the Caribbean. He writes, every meal I had in Fort Lauderdale was a treat. And he goes on to name some restaurants, tell you what he had. There are lots of pictures of the food. And you can wend your way through Cuban and Puerto Rican, Colombian, Greek, Mediterranean, Asian fusion. 
So just by way of example, I'll name check a couple of the restaurants he mentions. The Colombian Mountains Cafe, where he ate something I can't pronounce, possibly bandeja paisa, maybe, which he describes as a massive meal with sausage, steak, egg, rice and beans, avocado, chicharron, helpfully he tells us that's pork skin, and so on. So one for a hungry day. And then at the Casablanca Cafe, he tells us he enjoyed scallops and a key lime martini. Both were so good, he says, and their patio area with a view of the ocean is top-notch. Moving on from Fort Lauderdale to a completely different continent, I picked out the post labelled Things to do in Saigon from someone who lived there. Turns out that Kevin lived there for nine months. Of course, it's also known as Ho Chi Minh City. And this helpfully detailed post will tell you, as Kevin himself puts it, everything you need to know if you're heading to Saigon for a few days. There are 12 sections. You can find out all about the cathedral and the famous pink church. The photo of that is stunning, actually. The museums, which streets are the backpacker streets, where are the best shops and markets, more guides on where to eat, some ideas for day trips. Really, everything is there. So just to pick a few examples, he says you definitely shouldn't miss the central post office. That sounds like an unlikely venue, doesn't it? But no, he says, go inside, enjoy the intricate decor, complete with portrait of Ho Chi Minh himself, check out the souvenir vendors inside, and his tip would be to go at sunset, because then you can experience the post office without the sea of tourists who are there during the day, which is a good thing, because the tile floor is beautiful, and, as he rightly points out, you won't be able to see it if there are a ton of people inside. Kevin would also recommend visiting City Hall, at least that's what the Americans would call it. Apparently in Vietnam it's known as the People's Committee of Ho Chi Minh City. The building itself is beautiful, and it's in a lovely street with a totally unpronounceable name, which I'm not even going to attempt. And there you can enjoy the Ho Chi Minh statue, the huge lotus fountain, lovely photo of that on the blog, and lots and lots of shops and street vendors. If it's a sky view you fancy, then there's the Saigon Sky Deck in the city centre, and a little further outside, a building called Landmark 81. But actually Kevin's tip I rather liked. He said, why not go to my favourite rooftop bar, Air Saigon, which offers unobstructed views of the city's tallest and most famous skyscrapers, and, in the name of enjoying yourself while you look at all of that, delicious cocktails at reasonable prices. He has a couple of museums to recommend. The Vietnam History Museum, which is all about ancient Vietnamese history, the ethnic minorities, a place to see loads of beautiful artefacts and artwork. And then also the War Remnants Museum for a story of the Vietnam War from, as he puts it, a different perspective than you're probably used to if you're from America or Europe. You need to go with an open mind, he says, and be ready to learn about the impacts that the war had some of which were truly terrible. They don't shy away from explaining about the use of Agent Orange, the herbicide which caused such terrible suffering. Yes, he says, the content is quite graphic, but on the other hand, it's the sort of thing that really people ought not to forget. If you've had your fill of colonial architecture, he says, then go to the Independence Palace, which was built in the 1960s and has a lavish interior with what he calls an undeniable retro vibe. I felt, he says, as if I was touring a James Bond movie set as we wandered through the ornate meeting rooms and secret passageways in the basement. 
There's advice too on where to find the best bars. He names a street where you can get a backpacker vibe, bars blasting music seven nights a week and so on. One of Asia's busiest and loudest bar streets. Although it can be fun, he says, it can also be overwhelming and I personally found myself visiting its cafes and restaurants during the day more often than going to the bars at night. There's an entire separate post on the Expat's Guide to Eating in Saigon and there are other posts on the rest of the country because in the nine months that he spent living there teaching English he managed to see quite a few different areas. I imagine lots of travellers would perhaps want to visit Saigon and some of the rest of the country and this is a website that will help you do that. So do go find. That's caffeinatedexcursions.com I will put all the exact addresses in the notes at the end of the episode. So now let's move on to another interestingly named website known as chalkandcheesetravels.com and run by Michelle and Richard who say that they have been well and truly bitten by the travel bug. I enjoyed the phrase they use where they say they see their salaries as travel vouchers. I get the impression they set off as often as they can and the blog is the result of their travels a place to share their explorations and adventures. In 10 years plus of travelling together, they have visited five continents. And if you're still wondering why the website is called what it is, I think the answer comes in the fact that they're both, while obviously being a great team, quite different. They look for different things from every trip, and so between them, they cover lots of possibilities. Here's Michelle's explanation. As a teacher, I love to research every available activity in a destination, from craft markets and cooking classes to orphanages and local townships. My husband, a chef, explores the hottest eateries and local favourites to ensure that we try all the tastiest treats and authentic cuisines. And what a great mix. Surely all culture vultures are interested in food and foodies like to know more about the countries that they visit. So I think it works really well. And just to emphasise their love of travel, they end their introduction with the following words. Life is too short not to make the most of it. Eat the cake, buy the shoes, and then in capital letters, take the trip. Yes, quite. Lots of different sections on this blog too. One on cafes and restaurants, for example. One on travel advice, travel extras. There's a great post on that called Photographic Failures. Refreshingly honest about the way things go wrong sometimes, but In their defence, I must add that the rest of the blog is full of wonderful photographs of all the places they've been. Okay, other sections would include travel guides to five Australian cities and then a section for each of the continents they've visited. So again, where to start? What to pick? I went in the end for one post on Africa, including Cape Town, and then one of the five Australian cities. So, Cape Town then, where, as they put it, Africa meets Europe. They'd actually travelled around the city for the first week, been to the Franchot Wine District, seen the Victoria Falls, lots of other things. But then there's a section on the three days that they spent in Cape Town, which was quite the contrast. Cape Town, they've written, echoed the squares and streets that we've previously encountered in other destinations with a European feel. It had the comfort of a city, but with a genuine African twist. Their guide includes some of the things they did on their visit. They too opted for some hop-on, hop-off transport, a bus in this case, which took them all around the city centre and then up out to almost the top of Table Mountain, 
back down again past things like the impressive stadium built for the 2010 World Cup. And their summary of this way to see the city is as, quote, a nice snapshot for people on a time budget. But of course, you want to do some wandering in the city centre as well. And one of their tips early evening, perhaps before you go out to eat, would be to go down to the marina area where you can see, quote, the amazing talent of the singers and dancers who gather there and get swept away in the heartwarming rhythm and cheer of some incredible street performers. Talking of eating, they too have a recommendation. Go to the V&A food market, they say, going on to explain that it's a reclaimed warehouse-style setting with lots of different food and drink outlets. Real selection of local and international flavours, open from brunch right through to evening meals. I looked it up on TripAdvisor, 4.5 stars. And I was intrigued. Why is it called the V&A? To me, that's a museum in London. Turns out I wasn't far off. It doesn't actually stand for Victoria and Albert. It stands, wait for it, for Victoria and Alfred. No, not a misprint. Alfred was Queen Victoria's second son, and he came on a visit to the Cape Colony in 1860. He was a 16-year-old Navy midshipman at the time, and he was the first ever member of the royal family to visit. So delighted were the colonials about this, that they named part of the new Navy Yard after him, and another part after his mother. So V&A, Victoria and Alfred. Michelle and Richard also describe a day out they went on from Cape Town, called the Cape Point Day Trip. An early morning drive along the Atlantic seaboard, gorgeous white beaches, rugged mountains, a stop-off at an island inhabited by hundreds of seals, a visit to the Cape of Good Hope, and to Boulders Beach, where they had, quote, the opportunity to visit a colony of rare African penguins, watching them waddle and play together on the sand, and duck and dive in the ocean. So all very much a picture of a mixed trip with some city centre interest and some coastal visits too. If you're interested in the rest of their Africa trip, that's all there on the blog. OK, so crossing continents now to Australia. We've got five city guides and I thought I'll pick one to which City Breaks has not yet already been, and that's Melbourne, known apparently as the most multicultural hip city in Australia. A beautiful city, they say, with an abundance of malls, coffee shops, restaurants and some of the coolest street art anywhere in the world. Michelle and Richard's tips for things to do there would include the Eureka Sky Deck, Australia's largest building, a tower of 297 metres and a lift that will whip you up there in, apparently, 38 seconds so that you can see some of the best views of Melbourne. 360 degree vistas of this, quote, quaint and quite beautiful city. You really ought to visit the MCG, they say, and if you don't know what that is, it's the Melbourne Cricket Ground, the largest stadium in the Southern Hemisphere. If you fancy a day out, then the Great Ocean Road Trip is the one you should take. Hire a car, drive the 243-kilometre stretch along the Southern Ocean. You can take in all that wonderful scenery. You can stop off at places like the Twelve Apostles, massive limestone structures that tower 45 metres above the ocean, and generally get a feel for the splendid context in which the city of Melbourne is set. An idea for an evening out in Melbourne comes in the form of the Crown Casino, a real slice of Vegas, they say, where you can enjoy the buzz, possibly make your fortune on the casino floor, and certainly enjoy some of the best restaurants and bars which cluster around it. 
If you're wondering about the free stuff to do in Melbourne, there are plenty of tips on that too. Definitely the street art. And a link is provided to another website which gives you loads of pictures, tells you the exact locations of the various things and will generally set you on your way. You should go coffee shop hopping too, they say, because no street corner, suburb or back street is complete without its trendy coffee shop. Then there's the Southern Hemisphere's largest open-air market, the Queen Victoria Market. She does seem to have got everywhere, doesn't she, our Queen Victoria? And the glorious Melbourne Botanical Gardens, ancient by Australian standards, being over 170 years old. There are also lots of recommendations on where to eat in Melbourne, actual restaurant names, etc., whether you want Asian food, Italian, as they put it, with all the usual Melbourne touches. Or maybe it's bars you're interested in. And their recommendation there is one called the Black Pearl, quote, the unofficial kickstarter to what is the trendy bar scene in Melbourne today. It has an ever-changing experimental menu, and in 2017, it was voted the world's best cocktail bar. So, thank you very much to Michelle and Richard from chalkandcheesetravels.com. Let's move on one more time to yet another website with a fascinating name. This time, carpediemera.com So carpe diem as in seize the day, a good motto for travellers, I feel. Era as in Ireland, and all written as one word. But worry not, I'll put it in the show notes so you can find it. Hi, say the owners. We are John and Beata. Can I pause here to apologise if I'm mispronouncing Beata's name? I know she's Hungarian. I'm quite aware that I'm approaching this word with my German teacher head on and that that actually might be wrong. I really, really should have checked with you. I do apologise. Anyway, they introduce themselves. We are a Dublin-based couple with a huge passion for travel and day trips. They too sound quite different in an interesting sort of way. John tells us that he is, quote, a street art hunter, castle lover, road tripper, sightseer till he drops, street food fanatic, occasional solo wanderer and hiker. He's the adventurous one and eternal optimist. Okay, Anne Beata is, quote, a market lover, shopper till she drops, foodie who never forgets a good meal, by far the better cook, sunset and cloud lover. She's the more cautious one, one who knows when to slow right down and relax. And to sum up this line, which I really enjoyed, we travel not to escape life, but for life not to escape us. Another blog with lots and lots and lots of stuff on it, to which I'm definitely not going to be able to do justice. But to start with a summary, there's a complete section on Ireland, lots of posts on Dublin about the street art, the castles, the day trips you can do, an intriguing one named How to Turn the Journey from Dublin to Cork into a Road Trip. There's a separate section on hiking with loads of walks described, lots of them in Ireland, but not exclusively so. A separate section again on road trips. Again, lots of Irish ones, but also one in search of Dutch tulip fields. One entitled, something else I can't pronounce, two days in Tokai, maybe. The wine region of Hungary, which is UNESCO recognised. Yet more on the monasteries of Meteora in Greece. The most beautiful villages in Alsace. And so on and so on. So I picked two cities. And I'm going to start with Bern in Switzerland, which I picked. Largely because City Breaks has not yet been to Switzerland. Okay, so Bern, Swiss capital city, 
But, says John, more reminiscent of a large town atmosphere, really, than a big city, it, quote, rises above its size and deserves to be seen. His opening description runs as follows. A city of fountains and bears, set on the banks of the river Ara, its beauty will surprise you. It's one of those rare places where I would be as happy to live as to visit. There follow lots of practical details about how to get there, planes and trains and what not, and where they stayed and what that was like. Lots and lots and really lots of excellent photos, giving you the relaxed atmosphere of the city centre, which, by the way, is a UNESCO World Heritage Centre. Part of the appeal, says John, is just walking about the streets, marvelling at the buildings of the old town. Lots of half-timbered houses, flags in many windows, making a very colourful sight, and delightful roofs with cute little dormer windows. The Bernese, he says, love their street fountains, and he goes on to explain that they have about a hundred or so, many of which date from the 16th century. All sorts of themes, biblical themes, for example, there's Moses, there's Samson, but other things too, there's a fountain depicting justice, another one showing a piper, and, wait for it, at least eleven showing the symbol of Bern, which is the bear. Quite a spread of ancient and beautiful buildings. Towers, for example. So there's one called the Käfigturm, bell tower from the 17th century, and another one called, I think, the Zietglogge. As a German speaker, I'm going to guess that the Glogge in that word is related to the modern German word Glocke, which means bell. This tower is 800 years old, famous particularly for its astronomical clock, where Kronos, the Greek figure of time, strikes the bell with a hammer every hour, and where at ten to every hour you can gather on the street below to watch some little mechanical figures, bears and jesters, do their dance, playing out thanks to a mechanism built in the 16th century. And while you gaze at the clock, do bear in mind that Einstein himself lived here and gazed at it too. In fact, it's said to be perhaps one of the things which prompted him to think all his very clever thoughts. There's a beautiful town hall too, early parts dating from the 13th century, with a 17th century addition, which, as John explains, has elegant double stairs and a balcony for politicians to make speeches from. You'll almost certainly want to pop into the cathedral too, Maybe ask yourself the question, how did it come to take 450 years and then some to complete it? Begun in 1421, not finished until 1893. You can enjoy the 15th century sculpture of the Last Judgment, the stained glass windows from the same period. Sadly, you can no longer enjoy many of the original paintings and altars because they were removed during the Reformation in the 16th century. The bell tower is still there, though, Switzerland's tallest steeple, in fact, so if you have the energy for 254 steps, you will be rewarded with lovely views, described by John as follows. The Bernese rooftops are a pleasure to look over, and the River Ara is a beauty. In the distance, we could see snow-covered Alps. There's a ten-ton bell as well, the Große Glocke, which is German for Big Bell, dating from 1611, and, as John points out, you don't want to be there when the bells ring at twelve and six daily. Very helpful advice, I feel, but so too was the next sentence. I did see earmuffs provided, if you are. One of the loveliest things to do is to take a walk along the river, and the blog gives you tips on various places where you could start, along with enticing descriptions, such as of the turquoise waters. The lovely clean pure water comes straight from the glaciers up in the Alps, 
and the colour is due to the fact that it's so rich in minerals. Stunning, says John, going on to explain. Standing on the Kirchenfeldbrücke, that's a bridge, I think, I was amazed as to one side the Parliament rises from the river, and to the other the Minster, that's the cathedral. I could have easily stood there all day long, taking it in. If I can suggest one place to find in Bern, in summary, this is it. And if I could suggest a second, I think it would be the Bear Park, described as follows. The Bear Park winds down to the river, and in these idyllic surroundings, the local population of bears, which now numbers three, walk, laze and swim. There's a rose garden too, leading up from the river, more stunning views, and a bench which features a statue of Albert Einstein, and is, says John, the most sought-after selfie location in the city. Lots of museums too, an art museum, the Alpine Museum of Switzerland, and the best, in John's opinion at least, the Einstein House, where Albert Einstein lived from 1903 to 1905, where he developed his theory of relativity, and where you can see period furniture and documents from the time that he spent in the city. And finally then, a slightly unusual post from the same website. Unusual because after the introduction, it really consists of 50 photographs. The reason being that it's on the city of Bruges in Belgium, which, if you know it at all, you will already know is hugely picturesque. John writes a little introduction to the 50 photographs and then lets them speak for themselves. Let me quote a little of what he had to say. It was love at first sight for me when I visited Bruges. It's a photographer's dream. Houses hang over calm canals. Gothic masterpieces tower over pristine squares. Time seems to have paused here. The city is a masterpiece, and it undoubtedly ranks as the most beautiful I have ever seen. It is in essence an open-air museum, one that's free to walk and take in its sights at your liberty. When night falls on Bruges, it takes on a new appearance as lights illuminate the canals. And to finish off, he writes, This is my Valentine's Week post, so it's the perfect time to celebrate my love for this perfect city. I hope you appreciate my 50 photos of Bruges. Describing photographs is, as they say, not good radio, or indeed good podcasting. I'm not even going to try, but I do recommend that you go find and lap them up. Whether you've been to Bruges or not, you will find them utterly charming. This is a website with so much more on it that I haven't had time to mention. Let me just finish with a quick list of some of the cities that are covered, although it is, of course, absolutely not a blog which deals only in cities. But if you're interested in any of the following, again, go find. Thessaloniki in Greece, Bath, Edinburgh, London, Budapest, Pisa, Marrakesh, Lisbon, and my favourite description, Oradea in Romania, which John says, quote, I visited more or less by default, but I'm glad I did. I leave you with that intriguing thought, and with my thanks again to John and Beata and their Carpe Diem Era website, and of course also to Kevin and to Richard and Michelle. City Breaks will be back next week with a continuation of the London series. Do come and give us a try if you have a moment, or indeed if you're not familiar with it, perhaps have a look at the back catalogue, all of which you can find on www citybreakspodcast.co.uk or in fact you can get the podcast on all the usual platforms. If you could leave a review that would be fantastic. If you have any comments or questions you can send them by email to citybreaks at citybreakspodcast.co.uk 
or indeed you can find us on Twitter at City Breaks Cast. So then, enough, enough. So many ideas to think about. At least I hope you feel that from today's episode. Thank you very much for your company and I do hope that we'll meet up again in future episodes. Goodbye. <laughs>